seeing his determination to deny Christ, the executioner now threatened to burn him at the stake to which this great man of God responded, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment it will bring reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church, of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Revelation, and we've begun a look at the seven churches listed in chapters two and three. We've already examined the admonition to the church at Ephesus, and yesterday, Dr. Brogy began a look at the church at Smyrna. We see in verses eight to 11 of chapter two that this church has been marked for persecution. And in today's study, we'll discover that part of that persecution came from the Roman Empire because the true Christians in Smyrna had refused to bow down and worship Caesar. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he gives us a little more insight into this town that housed some very dedicated Christians. Now, Ephesus, we discovered last week, was the capital city of the whole province of Asia. It was the Washington, D.C., so to speak. Well, if Ephesus was the Washington, D.C., Smyrna was the New York City. This was a commercial city. It was a very, very wealthy city. The rich of the rich lived in this city. And one of their products, which they were known for, after which this city is named, was for a little shrub-like bush called myrrh. And so it's called Smyrna. You know what myrrh is. The wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were insightful, godly men, not pagans. They brought gold because they worshiped Jesus as a king. They brought frankincense because they worshiped his sinless deity. God said that you couldn't just use frankincense for your own personal use. And if you did, you were to be cut off or executed. It was only to be used by the Jewish people in the worship of God because it emphasized the holiness of God. And so they brought frankincense to worship his sinless deity, but they also brought myrrh. That's like bringing embalming fluid to a baby shower. But they did that because they understood what the prophet Daniel had said that Messiah would be cut off. These were probably disciples of Daniel down the line. In either case, this is a very religious city. There's a lot of temples there built to men uh, like Zeus or gods like Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite. Cybele was one of the higher gods worshipped on a street called the Golden Street. And they had such a street because they were such a wealthy place. And so pagan life dominated this place, and there were some thriving Jewish synagogues here as well. Now let's read verse 1. To the angel, the senior pastor of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. Now again, with each of these, he gives a personal description of himself from the first chapter, and it caters to the specific need of this church. Here he calls himself the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. Now, the first and the last is a very important phrase found in the Old Testament, what the Jews call the Tanakh. If you're doing Jewish evangelism, and you should pray for opportunity, 
because God cares about Jewish people. Don't call our first half the Old Testament. They'll find that offensive, and it's unnecessary to offend them. Call it the Tanakh, what they call it. That's an anachronym for Torah, Nephi'im, Torah, the first Nephi'im, the prophets, and Ketuvim, the, the writings. So they call their Bible the Tanakh. Well, in the Tanakh, this phrase, the first and the last, is a description of God Almighty, of Jehovah or Yahweh. You could interpret the word either way, either Yahweh or Jehovah, depending how you put the vowels. And so God describes himself in that way, and yet Jesus describes himself in this way in this verse. I'm the first and the last. He said to those Jewish men, before Abraham was born, Jehovah, Yahweh, I am. And of course, they picked up stones to stone him. Why are you stoning me? Because of the good deeds I've done? No, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. If you ever encounter Jehovah's Witness and you're trying to win them to Jesus, a good verse to use is Isaiah 44, 6 with this verse in Revelation. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. You see that it's in all caps. That means Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. And you can put the vowels where you could pronounce it Yahovah or Yahweh, either way. In the New American Standard, which is what most of us have in our laps this morning, and the 1901 edition called the American Standard Version, the ASV, every time you came to this word Lord, they rendered it Jehovah. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses, before they created their own translation of the Bible, used the NASB. But they ran into problems because as people were reading the NASB, called then the ASB, they started getting saved. <laughs> so then they created their own uh, corrupt translation where they manipulated what God had said. It was done by people who knew nothing of the Greek New Testament. God said, I am the first and the last. Jesus says, I am the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Unmistakably, it can only refer to him. In Revelation 1.18, he says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. He is alive forevermore. He has indestructible, incorruptible life. And if you are united to him because you've been born again, you will live forever as well. He says, I have the keys of death in Hades. That means he has authority over life and death. Not only did he come out of the grave, he took the keys with him. He's in total charge. And what an encouragement that would be for these saints in Smyrna who are being persecuted and beaten up, and some of them were losing their lives. Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. On another occasion, he said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, this verse is an encouragement. Revelation chapter 2, the letter to Smyrna, to Christians in Asia and Africa who are being persecuted by ISIS and Boko Haram. This verse is a great encouragement to Christians in India, and I've been communicating on a regular basis with one of our missionaries in India, and we've been Skyping back and forth to Christians who are being persecuted where their homes and their churches are being burned by Hindu nationalists. This verse is an encouragement to Christians in the Middle East. 
who because they refuse to renounce Jesus, they literally have their heads cut off. And by the way, that will be the standard means of persecution during the time of the tribulation. They won't throw you in jail. They will cut off the heads of God's tribulation saints. 600 Christian nationals were brought together by Franklin Graham last week in Washington, D.C. to deal with this problem of persecution that is epidemic right now. Understand the church was born in persecution, but also understand the Bible teaches the church will end in persecution. It's one of the marks and one of the signs of the last days. And if you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, he describes how Emperor Domitian, he's the emperor in the Roman Empire, who's over this province and all of the Roman Empire, who's in charge when the book of Revelation is written in 95 AD. Not only had they suffered as believers horrifically under Nero, they also suffered under Domitian. But the end of both those men were awful. They died horrible deaths themselves. And the ultimate persecutor, the Antichrist, who will persecute more believers than anyone in all of human history, his end will also be in the future lake of fire. So what do we do as Christians? Do we sit on our hands because in America it is relatively little persecution here? By the way, that's going to change, and it is changing. Right now, most of the persecution is verbal. And one of the things that concerns me is parents who are bringing their children into my office, and they have children 8, 10, 11, 12 years old, and they're being made fun of and persecuted by other children of the same age. It tells me how much evil is getting even into the hearts of little innocent children. And listen, if this nation does not turn around, if evil just continues to grow, you need to prepare your children and your grandchildren for what is in front of them because they will be persecuted. And so do we sit on our hands and do nothing? Of course not. Hebrews 13.3 says, remember those in prison. And that's what these 600 nationals were doing in D.C. last week. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them. And those ill-treated as though you too felt their torments. And so Jesus describes himself as the one who is alive, who is over death, who is over the grave. He wants them to know that he is in total authority, not Domitian. He has no authority over your life. He can't lock you into the grave. He can't lock you into Hades. He can't lock you into hell, and neither can he lock you out of heaven. I am in absolute control. And so these were believers who were letting their light shine, and because they were, they paid a price. Look further into verse 8 and then verse 9. Into the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The first and the last, who is dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation. Now we saw that the word tribulation, some of your English Bibles say sufferings, but I don't think that's the best translation because suffering can encompass a broad span of things that are not necessarily tribulations. Now, we saw this word already. Someone said to me last week, you repeated yourself already on one of the points. I said, I repeated myself because the Bible repeated itself. And every time God repeats a theme again in the Revelation, I'm going to repeat what God said. Do you think he repeats himself because he has nothing to say? Of course not. The problem is some of us have become dull of hearing. 
and we don't have ears to hear the Word of God. They're waxed over, to use a metaphor in the New Testament. No, he wants us to hear some things over again because it's through repetition that it really sticks. And so we saw that the word tribulation doesn't refer to the average aches and pains. And, you know, we just say, well, he's going through a lot of trials and tribulations, and we just kind of group it all together. It specifically is used in the New Testament to describe hostility or pressure from an unbelieving world towards the believer. In the world, you will have tribulation, philipsis. But take courage, I have overcome the world. It's a Greek word that literally means to be crushed. It was used outside of the Bible in this century that the revelation is being written of a rock that was rolled over a person as a means of torture. It was used of grapes that were crushed to get the juice out of them. Jesus said, speaking of the coming tribulation, for those days will be a time of philipsis, tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. The tribulation saints, we're church saints, but those saved during the tribulation will experience untold persecution. In Revelation 7, he describes these who have been beheaded. These are the ones who come out of the great Thalipsis, tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Paul warned the saints through many tribulation, same word. We must enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the first and the last. I am over life and death. I understand what you are going through. I understand the crushing persecution, the tribulation that you are facing. Now, we might ask a question here. What was it about life in Smyrna that created such tribulation? Well, we don't have to wonder. We know precisely why, because the book of Revelation, remember, is written in 95 AD to second-generation Christians. And we know that persecution came on two levels, one from Jewish people. He's going to mention that before we're done in the letter. Jewish people who were Jewish unbelievers who hated the Christians. But secondly, it came to Christians because of their unwillingness to bow down and worship Caesar. Now remember, by 95 AD, the Roman peace, the Pax Romanus had come into full bloom. I mean, it was a golden age of sorts. People were enjoying life. They could travel without fear of being robbed. They could move across the sea without fear of pirates. The road system, everything just seemed so wonderful. And so to be involved in Caesar worship as much as anything was to be for the government. It was to be fiercely patriotic. And initially, when Caesar worship was opened up, it was done on a voluntary basis and was rather spontaneous. But there came a time when they highlighted a particular individual, namely the Caesar himself, who they said embodied the spirit of a goddess that they worshipped there, Dea Roma. Dea Roma. They, they built a huge temple to her. And they said the Caesar embodied this spirit. They built the very first temple in honor of Caesar worship in the entire Roman Empire. 
In fact, once a year, it came to a point where it was no longer voluntary but mandatory. By 95 AD, the law was in place that you had to offer a pinch of incense and bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians refused to do that. They said, Jesus is Lord. And they refused to do that. Now, it would be easy to compromise. They could have said, okay, they've got their temple to Aphrodite, and they have a temple to Daphne, and one to Mercury, and so on and so forth. So, we'll just have our little temple to Jesus. And, oh, what is it for two minutes out of the air to bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. But that's not the way they thought. They thought that would be idolatry. And they recognized that Jesus was not just another God in the pantheon of false gods, that there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the true Christian would not compromise with this two-minute ordeal. And by the way, when they did this, they received the certificate. We have found some of those ancient certificates. These are the words written on it. We, the representatives of the empire, have seen you sacrificing. And so if you didn't bow down and sacrifice, you were considered a disloyal patriot. And it brought persecution. Now you can hardly mention the church at Smyrna without mentioning the pastor Polycarp. Polycarp was personally discipled and mentored by the Apostle John. He was a second-generation Christian, and he was considered to be one of the church fathers. He was a young man when John the Apostle mentored him, and many think that he was the pastor when this book was written, that he was the pastor, that he was the angel that Jesus specifically had in mind. Well, there came a time when, because of his refusal to worship the emperor before a crowd of roaring spectators, one historian of the day records him saying, 80 and six years I have served him, and he has never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Well, with that statement, they further threatened Polycarp, and he answered, call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good. They threatened him with animals from the cages. Call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. Then the historian of the day says that the Roman officer said this to him, I have respect for your age. Simply say, away with these atheists and be set free. And by atheists, he meant the Christians who would not call Caesar Lord. To which the old pastor said as he pointed to the crowd, away with these atheists. Seeing his determination to deny Christ, the executioner now threatened to burn him at the stake, to which this great man of God responded, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment it will bring reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. And so on February the 23rd, 155 A.D. at the age of 100, he was executed by being burned at the stake. And here is the Savior saying, I know your tribulation. I know the, the pressure and the despair and the hatred and the death that you are under. I know the burden of your heart. I understand it. I've been there. I've lived it. 
and I'm with you. And so these are words of great encouragement to these saints that their Savior knows precisely what they are going through. You know, when a, when a child is uh, hurt, they often run to their mother, don't they? Because a mother, with the way God has wired a woman, gives a certain compassionate spirit and cares, and, and the child knows that the mother knows what they're going through. When my kids would get hurt, they would usually run to mom. When they were broke, they'd run to me. That's just the way it worked. But, but Jesus said, I know, I understand what you're going through. Second, there's this church that not only faced persecution, but poverty. Verse 9. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The first and the last who is dead and has come to life. Says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now the Greek word for rich, I mean for, for excuse me, for poverty, is an interesting word. Because there's about three or four words in the Koine Greek of the New Testament that God could have used. But he used a word specifically that describes destitute poor. I mean virtually nothing. And history records that their goods were confiscated. Uh, and you can imagine what it was like. Their businesses were abandoned. Their homes, much like the Jews during the Second World War in Nazi Germany, they came in, they broke into their homes, and they took everything that they owned. Can you imagine what it was like to be a Christian in the midst of an incredibly wealthy city? Satan could have easily thrown those fiery darts at them. Oh, you serve Jesus. Look where it's gotten you. It's cost you everything. Just deny him and you'll prosper. But not these brothers. They said, we're going to serve Jesus no matter what. They thought they were poor, but notice what Jesus said, you are rich. And the word for rich is the word that comes directly into English as plutocrat. You are my plutocrats. You are the highest of the high among my rich, so to speak. Jesus was not some blind optimist, but he understood his people. And he understood that those saints who had lost everything in one, on the one hand had gained everything else on the other hand. As we'll see in a moment, they had gained great treasure in heaven. Now put yourself in their shoes because Jesus is saying to them, you think you're poor and you are in a material way, but you're really rich. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Suppose I come to you and I say, hey, Tom, I've been doing some research in the family tree, and I've discovered that we are related. And I'm a billionaire. And as a billionaire, one of the things that I do is I give $2 million to anyone in my family tree. And I say, Tom, you need to know that your great-great-great-uncle was my great-great-grandfather's brother, and that makes us distant cousins. And you know my... Uh, my normal apparatus is to give $2 million to anyone in the family tree. So here's a check for $2 million. And you're absolutely elated. Now all you have is a check with my signature on it. Now I want to ask you, are you rich or are you poor? Now you're headed towards the bank. And you're going to cash that check. Are you rich or are you poor? Because of who I am and because of my integrity and what my signature means on that check, you'd probably pick up the phone and call your wife and say, we're millionaires, we're rich. And you drive to the bank in that old clunker car in your threadbare clothing with a rumbling stomach because you haven't had a good meal in a few days. 
And you go with the attitude that you are rich because of whose signature is on the check. This is Jesus speaking. And he's speaking to people when they look all around them, it's like they have nothing. But Jesus says, in reality, you have everything. You are rich and you have my word on it. And so in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, the Smyrnese Christians were much like those to whom the writer to the Hebrews pens, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. And that's what they believe. Now, beyond their persecution and poverty, third, I want you to see their provocation. The church in Smyrna faced provocation. We read now in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, the word blasphemy, blasphemia, it's usually used in the New Testament in reference to slandering God. But on this occasion, it's used in reference to slandering God's people. And we know from history, Josephus himself records some of the common blasphemies, slanders that Christians had against them. They said they were cannibals because they talked about eating the flesh and blood, the body of Christ. And they said, you know, they go to their services and they cannibalize one another. And they talked about their potlucks that they called love feasts. And they saw it as an opportunity to slander them. And they're actually having sexual orgies at, the, at those feasts. And history records, in addition, not only were they blasphemed in that way, but because they refused to worship the Caesar they were considered atheists and infidels. And so Jesus says, I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These things were spoken by what Jesus refers to as false Jews. Now, were they Jews in terms that they, they were physical descendants of Abraham? Yes, they were. He's not denying that. But they were not true Jews. They were like a synagogue of Satan. We'll study this a little further when we come to the church at Philadelphia. So I'll just briefly comment on it here. But if you remember, Jesus encountered Jews in his day who were in essence not true Jews. And throughout the history of the church, there has been Jews who have received Jesus and some who have not. Now, when you study the book of Acts, what's really interesting is that the persecution that first comes upon the church is not primarily from the government, but from Jewish people. But as the centuries progress, it reverses. And Christians end up persecuting the Jewish people, and they still do to this day. False Christians, who unfortunately are lumped together with genuine born-again Christians, and so I have a friend who's an Orthodox rabbi in Jerusalem, and I was explaining to him, no, there's a difference between just Christians and born-again Christians. But you add to that, you have people like Augustine and Calvin and Luther who bemeaned and reviled the Jewish people. You go into Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in D.C. as well, and you read statements by those Christian leaders, and it's embarrassing. You feel like crawling underneath a couch and hiding yourself. Because they said such awful things about the Jewish people. And so the name Christian, as the centuries has gone by, has become synonymous with someone who is a Jew hater and even a Jew persecutor. 
to listen again to today's look at the church at Smyrna, part of our study in the book of Revelation. Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV5. And when you contact us, why not consider helping us in our mission of reaching those who don't know Christ and in growing those who do in their relationship with Him? Just click the Give button at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or call 877-787-7478 and ask about making a one-time gift or about becoming a foundation partner. Tomorrow we conclude our look at the Rich Little Poor Church. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.